Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be with you to preach God's word, to hear it, and like a child, obey it. But let's pray for God's help before we dive in. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We need you. We need you to show up right now in power. Lord, we ask to see you high and lifted up. We ask that you would draw more and more people towards you and that you would draw us nearer to you. Help us to be more like you in light of what we hear from your word today. Convict us, correct us, and change us that we would look more like you. We ask in your name. Amen. So the first poem that I ever learned and memorized was Langston Hughes' poem called Dreams. I think I was five or six years old, so as I read it, some hand motions might come out just because it's how I remembered it. Here's the poem. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die... Life is like a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams go, life is like a barren field frozen with snow. Get it? Because you're cold. That poem was meant to bring a sense of encouragement and determination for the people that would hear it to help people to hold on to their dreams and to hold on to their hopes. And as a boy, I love that poem, and I still do love that poem. It's so simple, so sincere, and so true. But what do you do if your dreams have already gone and they've already died? Maybe the life that you hope to have by now looks very different than the life that you actually do have. Maybe you had a bunch of dreams and goals that you would want to accomplish by insert whatever age, and that birthday has come and gone, and you've had many since, and you feel unaccomplished in some ways. Or maybe the life of your dreams or the marriage of your dreams, the family of your dreams just seems to be like that, a dream, a childlike fantasy. What if, because of dashed dreams or broken hopes, life looks like this poem describes? Like a bird with broken wings that cannot fly, or like a field that's barren and frozen, lifeless, hopeless. What kind of hope should we have, and where should we place our hope? Please meet me in Psalm chapter 131. If you're using the Bibles provided, that's going to be on page 519. Here we have another one of the Psalms of Ascent that we've been going through this summer. Another pilgrim song of God's people that they would have sung, that they would have prayed, that they would have shared with one another as they were heading to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And these songs were used to strengthen them, to encourage them, to remind them of their hope, to give them peace as they endured trials and opposition and trouble as they were on their way up to Mount Zion. But these songs have also been interpreted and used by God's people all throughout the ages to give them strength and hope as they journey in this world as pilgrims, strangers, sojourners, on our way to our heavenly Mount Zion, where the Lord rules and reigns. But we are not there yet. And that's why these Psalms can help encourage us as we continue to journey home. And in these Psalms of ascent, there are different types of Psalms. There's Psalms of longing, Psalms of lament, Psalms of remembrance and of trust. And today we'll find a Psalm of hope. Please follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 131. This is God's word. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes is not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. 
like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's what I think the main idea of Psalm 131 is. We can have a humble hope in the Lord as as we resist our pride and rest in his presence. We can have a humble hope in the Lord as we resist our pride and rest in his presence. We're going to cover that as we think about the psalm in three different ways. What we're going to first do is we're going to talk about David's humble hope, and we'll use that to just walk through the passage. Then we'll look to Christ and Jesus' humble hope and see how this is fulfilled in him. And then we'll look at our humble hope and see how we can apply this to our lives. So first, let's focus on David's humble hope. This psalm was specifically written by King David, the the shepherd who was chosen by God to be the king over all Israel. The man who's described in the Bible as the man after God's own heart. And we don't know specifics about David's life during the time of this psalm. We can speculate, but we know a lot about David. And this psalm applies to his life in many different seasons. And as Spurgeon once said about this psalm, Psalm 131 is both by David and about David. He is the author and the subject of it, and many incidents in his life may be employed to illustrate it. Because in David's life, he faced many trials and triumphs. He had many different victories and also defeats. There were times where he walked with the Lord in humble obedience, and then there were times where he disobeyed the Lord. Whatever the specific circumstances, David would be someone who would have a lot to say about having a humble hope in the Lord. And here in this psalm, he starts by directing his gaze towards the the Lord. Look at the psalm again. He starts by saying, O Lord. He uses the word Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is how David addresses him right at the start. David's gaze is towards the Lord, reminding himself of all that the Lord has done for him, how he's made promises and how he's also kept these promises to David and to all of God's people. Like the Lord calling David out from among his brothers to become the king of Israel, or how the Lord was with David as he fought Goliath, how the Lord upheld David as he was opposed by Saul, how the Lord led David as he sought the Lord's wisdom for various battles that the people of Israel had to fight against their enemies. This Lord that was with him and faithful to him to the very end is the Lord that he has in view as he addresses him in this psalm. And in lifting up his gaze towards the Lord, he declares that he is humbling himself in response to the Lord. And David's aim here is to resist his pride. And we know this because he explains in this psalm all that he's not doing. He says that his heart is not lifted up. He says that his eyes are not raised too high. And both of those statements are pictures biblically, of pride. A heart that is lifted up is a heart that is self-exalting and self-seeking. And the Bible describes the heart as the core of our very being, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our motivations, and even our lives. That's why in Proverbs 4.23, the Bible says that from the heart flow the issues or the spring of life. And that's why Jeremiah says, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And Jesus later teaches that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But David says here he's not lifting up his heart. He also says he's not raising up his eyes too high, meaning that he doesn't have haughty eyes. 
It's a word the Bible uses. And in Psalm 21.4, uh, Proverbs 21.4, the Bible says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. So you could almost see and picture this, this image that David is painting here. Someone walking around with their chest out, their, their hearts puffed up, their eyes raised really high, looking over everybody that's around them. It's a picture of pride. It's a picture of arrogance. And the Bible calls that sin. But David goes on from these images of a heart that's lifted up and eyes that are raised too high to explain exactly what he means by resisting his own pride. Look there again at the end of verse 1. He goes on to say, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That word there, occupy, has the image of taking up residence somewhere. But I don't know about you, but whenever I travel, I'm one of those that has to unpack my bags and put my things in place. Even if we're there for a night or a few days, go to the hotel room or wherever it is, take all of my stuff out of my suitcase, put everything where it should be, all completely aligned. I'm occupying that space. I'm completely moving in, even if it's just for a night. That's just my way. And that's what the scripture has in mind when it says that word occupy. David says, I'm not doing that. David says, I'm not unpacking my bags and moving in to the things that are too great and too marvelous for me to understand. But what are those things that are too great and too marvelous for David? Again, this psalm was likely written during the time that David was reigning as king. And think about it. If you're the king, there should be nothing that's too great or too marvelous for you. You rule and reign over everything, over everyone. So then what is David talking about here when he says that? I think David's describing God's plans and God's purposes as the things that are too great and too marvelous. For him, knowing all that God knows, all of his sovereign will, all the details of his plans, those things are too great and too marvelous for us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, for example, says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Or even think about Psalm 139, another Psalm of, of David, starting in verse 1. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know where I sit down and where I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Or even think about Job. In the end of Job, chapter 42, after Job and, and his friends spend all this time seeking answers, trying to figure out the cause of Job's misfortune, trying to figure out the depths of God's sovereignty, the Lord starts responding to Job in chapter 38. But here's how Job responds in Job 42, verse 3. This is what he says to the Lord in response. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job, in other words, was saying, your sovereignty, the mysteries of your will, that's too great and too marvelous for me. And in our day and age, there doesn't seem to be too much around us that's too great and too marvelous for us to know and understand. Everything's attainable. We can just ask our phones by typing or literally ask our phones by pushing a button. And it hears and it responds and gives us the answers to the questions that we want answered. At least most of them. Sometimes Siri is a little sarcastic or whatever. 
But it takes humility to admit that there are things that we just don't know or we don't understand. And some of us here might even have a hard time with that thought. Some of us might have a hard time seeing that this desire to know God's will and his purposes and the depths of his sovereignty and everything as prideful. You might think, I'm not prideful, I'm just inquisitive. I'm a truth seeker. I just want to know. But think about Adam and Eve in the garden, for example where the Lord created them in his image for their glory, and the Lord was literally in their midst and placed them in the garden and told them to eat freely of every tree except one. Then Satan rolls in or slithers in and deceives Eve by saying that God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve believed the lie that the Lord was withholding from her. And I think this illustrates what the Lord is meaning when he refers to this as pride. This is why God sees this as prideful. It's believing that the Lord is withholding good from us, withholding knowledge from us. And not believing that his revelation for us is sufficient for us to live and to follow him in this life. And David's aim here in presenting this contrast to show what he's doing instead. What it looks like to not pridefully occupy himself with the plans and purposes of the Lord. Instead, to occupy himself with the presence of the Lord and the rest that the Lord offers to him. And I think that's what he's getting at in verse 2 with this metaphor of a weaned child. Look again at verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So a weaned child is a child that no longer relies on his mother's milk for food, but can eat solid food on their own. And the weaning of a child was very important for any family, but specifically in the families in Israel. And that's why they even had weaning ceremonies. Celebrations for when an infant was weaned off his mother's milk and was able to eat solid food. They were able to become independent. So, for example, Genesis 21.8 says the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. Once a child is weaned, they are much more independent, and they therefore still relate to their mother, but in a new and different way. And I think with the number of families that we have in the room, we understand this, right? So a hungry baby or infant cries out for their mother's milk. They cry out for satisfaction. They're hungered to be uh, settled. And nothing else will do. No one else will do. Dad, get out of the way. And then they do that again and again and again until slowly but surely, after it takes some years, after it takes some time, the child grows and is weaned off his mother's milk. And what, that, and what that means and what happens to that relationship is that their relationship is different. The way that they relate to each other changes because that child has experienced year after year or day after day provision from that mother and love from that mother. They learn that mom's going to take care of me, not just when I'm hungry, but when I need anything. So instead of crying out for milk, they'd rather climb into their mother's lap just to sit with them, just to be with them. Kids in the room, we might understand this, right? Or even us who are older than kid age, we might think of maybe some of our relationships with our parents, right? It's like there's something magical about our parents' room, right? So if it's too dark or we get scared, we somehow make our way to our parents' room it's not any less dark, but what's the difference? Your parents are there. And that makes all the difference, especially when you're afraid. When I was about nine years old, I was waiting outside of school to be picked up from school, dribbling the basketball as I was working on my MBA career. 
with some guy that was right there. The ball rolled into the street. I chased the ball into the street without looking, and I was hit by a car. By God's grace, I was okay, but I was pretty badly hurt. And they called the ambulance to get me and everything and rushed to the hospital. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. But my main concern at that point was my aspiring basketball career. I even remember asking doctors, would I still be able to make it to the NBA? The Lord had other plans. I didn't make it for other reasons. But anyway, one of the moments that I remember the clearest about that day was when my dad finally showed up. And he walked into the room. And his face had this look of relief, of fear, of like, boy, why did you run into the street after that ball? All rolled up in one face. Parents can say a lot with their faces, can't they? And my pain didn't go away immediately. My circumstances didn't change right away. But the difference is my dad showed up. He was in the room with me. And I knew somehow things were going to be okay. And that's what David is getting at here with this metaphor. Notice it says, with the weaned child, with his mother, no longer crying out for hunger to be satisfied, but satisfied with the presence of their mother. David says his soul is like that. His confidence in the Lord grew just like the confidence of a weaned child with his mother, knowing that their mother would be good to them. And David says, I know that my father will be good to me. A weaned child is intimately acquainted with their mother's love, and they know regardless of what they see, that love will continue. David's saying, I want my hope in the Lord to be like that. I want it to look that way. If we look at verse 2 again, if you think about it in the original language, that verse is more of a, an oath or a declaration. It's a desire. So David's not bragging like, look at what I've done. You guys haven't done it, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. That's not what he's saying at all, because then that would no longer be humility, right? He's desiring to calm and quiet his soul and rest in the presence of the Lord. And as any mother would know, and like the mothers in our room would be acquainted with, the process of weaning can be long and exhausting and tiring. It takes time. And then you get another kid, and the process is somehow different with another child. And that may be hard, but the end result is well worth it, isn't it? And this should encourage us because this calming and quieting of our souls, this rest and satisfaction in the presence of the Lord is a process. It takes us resisting our pride and growing in our trust in the Lord and resting in his presence. And that may be difficult, it may be hard, but the humble hope that it produces is well worth it. Look at verse 3, where he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And David's humble hope is a hope that he wants all of God's people to share in. That's why he's offering that hope to all of God's people. And David's word here are helpful because he's wanting his brothers and sisters to hope in the Lord in that way and to borrow hope from him if they need to. And as we know, David in his life was not a perfect example of this, right? We've already talked about that. In 1 Chronicles 21, for example, it recalls a time where David was very prideful. David did not have faith in the Lord. He wanted to take account of all the people of Israel before they went to battle, instead of trusting that the Lord would be with them and help them through it. And the Lord said that was sinful, and God's people were punished because of that. And not to mention David and Bathsheba, with all the sin that he committed there, the pride that led to that sin, and then the covering of that sin with even more sin. It should be clear to us that David's example, although helpful, is not the only example that we need. We need a greater David, and that's why we will look to Jesus now and his humble hope in the Lord. Jesus' humble hope. And Jesus, in his life on earth, did not have a heart that was lifted up. 
He did not come with his own plan and his own ways. He said he came to do the Father's will. In fact, he said, I always do what the Father wants for me. I always say what the Father wants me to say. His heart was not lifted up. But in the Bible, Jesus describes his own heart as gentle and lowly and invites us to come to him. Jesus' eyes were not raised too high. He did not puff himself up or exalt himself over others. And that's why Jesus in his life was known as a friend of sinners. That's why he was seeking them out, seeking their good, seeking to give them the eternal life that he offered. And just like in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to grasp and cling on to. But instead, he emptied himself, meaning he humbled himself in the greatest way possible, taking on the form of a servant, the form of a man. And Jesus didn't even stop there. He humbled himself in obedience all the way to the cross, where he took on the full wrath of God for our sins. And even though he knew about the agony that would come if we think about the Garden of Gethsemane, He asked for the Lord to provide a different way, but submitted himself to God's will. He said, but not my will, yours be done. He put his hope in the Lord. So picture Jesus on his way up to Jerusalem, as he would have learned the scripture and would have known it by heart, with Psalm 131 on his lips. His eyes were not raised too high because they were fixed on the cross. Jesus calmed and quieted his soul, and he trusted in the Father's will. He was crucified, and then he rose from the grave so that all of us could put our hope for now and forever, for our sins to be forgiven, for eternal life now and tomorrow in him alone. That's the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian That is what Jesus offers. He offers salvation. He offers hope today through his death and his resurrection from the grave. We need to be reconciled to God, and Jesus provides that one way for it to happen. We should also remember that a lot of people in his life and earthly ministry, they would have heard the words of Jesus. They would have seen the things that Jesus done. And they, at times, did not change the way that they related to him. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus fed the multitudes, and he kept drawing more and more crowds. The people were looking for Jesus, and they were seeking after him. But why were they seeking after him? Because they were hungry. Because they wanted him to do something else. Because they wanted to see what else he would do why Jesus said this in John 6, 26. It's truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, not because you saw the evidence that I am God in the flesh, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You just want more food. Friends, are you seeking Jesus to satisfy you with himself, or do you just want to be fed? Jesus calls for us to be satisfied fully and completely in him, not in the things that he offers to us. That's why he later says, I am the bread of life. Feed on me and find satisfaction in me. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should remember that Jesus not only calls us to hope in the Lord humbly in this way, But his life demonstrates it in so many different examples. I think one clear example is thinking of Jesus and his disciples in the midst of a storm. Matthew chapter 8 recounts this story that Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. It must have gotten late. Jesus had been preaching and, and teaching, and he may have been a little bit worn out. And then a storm came. And the Bible says that the storm was so violent that the boat was being swamped with the waves. Kids in the room, do you remember what Jesus was doing at that time on that boat during that storm? 
What was he doing? He was asleep. He was knocked out. He was sleeping on the boat. And the disciples came to him. They, they shook him up. They woke him up. And they said, save us, Lord. We're about to die. Brothers and sisters, do you feel like that today? Do you feel like Jesus is asleep in the midst of your storm? We often give the disciples a bad rap here, but something we can learn from the disciples is that they went to Jesus in their grief. They cried out to him directly. Jesus woke up. He said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? We ought to marvel at the authority of Jesus, but allow ourselves to rest in his presence because of his authority. Knowing that if he's there, he's still in control, we are still in his hands, and he will not let us go, even in the midst of the storms that we endure. In light of all that, let's try to apply this text and this passage a bit more directly to our lives. We've talked about David's humble hope. We've seen the humble hope of Jesus. What about us? What about our humble hope? I think some of us might struggle with this passage in Psalm 131 because it just sounds and seems too good to be true, right? It just seems so quick. Like we want calm and quiet souls within us, but it's really so loud right now. And David makes it sound so simple. I calmed and quieted my soul, right? We might want a calm and quiet soul within us, but we don't know how to get it few things I think might be helpful in light of all this. To maintain a humble and quiet soul, a humble hope in the Lord. Three things. First of all, allow his goodness to fill in the gaps. We should allow his goodness to fill in the gaps. That means, in other words, resist the urge to know all the plans and all the ways of the Lord but allow the fact that he is good to fill in the gaps of our understanding or our misunderstanding. It's something that we need to resist, this desire to know everything and all the ins and outs of God's will and way and his sovereignty because questions of our past often haunt us and questions about our future often worry us. Maybe questions of some tragedy or some loss that you've experienced. Some of us have experienced grave injustice towards us and gets in our lives. Some of us have been harmed greatly by people we are supposed to trust. So then we would ask, why would the Lord allow that to happen? Or even the future? Will the Lord provide that job that we need? Will the Lord heal me in this life physically? Will the Lord mend my broken family? Will my loved one ever come to know Jesus? Or what does the Lord want me to do in my life? Those questions can plague us with doubt and insecurity and lead to anxiety. But we should allow the goodness of the Lord to fill in those gaps for us. Several years ago, I was helping to teach at my old high school. I was a band nerd and still am in some ways. Um, my band director there, his mom, um, his wife, excuse me, became ill. She got sick. It kind of came out of nowhere. And I was working there for several years while I was in college among a lot of non-Christian students and non-Christian coworkers. And I thought, Lord, if you would just heal her, what a witness that would be of your glory How many of these people would see that and they would turn to Jesus? That would be amazing. So when I got the phone call that she passed away, I was crushed. 
I was shocked. I was disappointed. Like, Lord, you could have glorified your name by healing her. Why didn't you do so? All these people that would have been drawn to you if she was able to live. Why did you allow that to happen? And brothers and sisters, if you have those why questions, bring them directly to the Lord. Sit them at his feet. Right after that funeral, I had a conversation with one of my old high school classmates. And in that conversation, I was reminded of the Lord's goodness in a small way. That friend had been wrestling with questions about Jesus. He was so moved by the funeral and so moved by whatever people said about Mama George, which is what we called her. So moved by her faith, even in the face of death, that he soon after that gave his life to Jesus. And that brother is still serving the Lord faithfully. Now hear me. That doesn't answer the question of why the Lord allowed that to happen. Sometimes we might want to look for those things and evidences of God's grace and his goodness and put that as the bow on top of everything that happened. It won't fill it, and God doesn't intend it to fill it. But that reminded me in a small way that the Lord was still there, he was still working, and he was still good. And those secret things can't remain as secret things. And we may not be able to make sense of what happens to us in this life. And we may be not, unsh- not sure about what can happen in the future or what will happen. But if we know the Lord is good and that he is somehow working all things together for our good and his glory, we can occupy ourselves with his goodness and not with our unanswered questions. We can occupy ourselves with him instead. So maybe instead of asking the Lord why, we should ask, Lord, where can I find your goodness right now? And the answer will be in his face. Psalm 27, David cries out in a similar way. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. And the Lord answers with an invitation. He said, seek my face. David said, your face, Lord, I will seek. The Lord will not always offer us answers to all of those questions, but he will always offer himself. He will always offer his presence. Which leads to a second point of application. We should allow his presence to quiet our souls. Allow his presence to quiet our souls. David Pallison has a wonderful booklet called Stress, Peace Amid Pressure. That's on Psalm 131. Thank you again, Beth, for that. And in it, he has a section where he presents this anti-Psalm 131 to show what it looks like in real time when we're not allowing the Lord's presence to give us Hope. He says this. Instead of Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Self, my heart is proud. Instead of Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. He says, my eyes are hardy. Instead of I do not marvel myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, I chase after things that are too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes on anything and everybody all the time. We might feel that way this morning. Like our souls are not at rest. Like we're noisy and and restless on the inside. Or some of us, our minds might quickly go to passages like Philippians 4, where the Apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing. And we think, yeah, Paul, I've been trying to do that. It's not as easy as you're making it seem. Phrases like that might seem laughable or impossible or even insensitive. There's something in Philippians 4 that I think that we often overlook in that. Why don't you quickly flip over there? Philippians chapter 4, 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, right before Colossians. Page 982. We look at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, we might kind of roll our eyes at that, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now that we might know, and that we might see, and that we might try to get. But there's a little phrase right before the start of verse 6 that I think I, and maybe some of you, often overlook. What does it say? What does it say there? The Lord is at hand, which means that the Lord is near. So rejoice always. Why? How? Because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. It will come up next. How? Because the Lord is near. So we can trade in our anxieties and receive his peace because he's near to his people. And that's why he goes on to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our hearts and our minds need to be guarded. And they need to be humbled. And we can do that by giving our anxieties to the Lord in prayer. And here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean, all right, nothing matters. Akuna matata. It's all good. Don't worry, be happy. That's not what it says. It means that we are mindful of his very presence. And that's why Paul goes on to say, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, and that's Jesus, think about these things. What you have heard, or if you have learned and seen and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Excuse me, the God of peace will be with you. And that kind of psalms like, sounds like Psalm 131, doesn't it? Not occupying ourselves with things too great and too marvelous, not concerning ourselves with all the, the ins and outs of God's plans and purposes, but occupying ourselves with God's goodness, resting in his presence. And one way we can help to humble ourselves and even humble our thoughts in this is by using Philippians 4.8 as kind of a filter of these thoughts. Saying these things are a reality in my life, but I'm not going to occupy myself there. I'm not going to unpack my bags and move in. Instead, I'm going to occupy myself with the things that are true, that are lovely, that are commendable, that are worthy of praise. Are those comparisons with your coworker honorable? If not, then replace them with higher thoughts about the Lord and what he's provided. Are those thoughts pure and just? No, replace that by reminding yourself of the purity and justice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel like you are all alone in this life? Replace that with the knowledge that the Lord is with us and will be with us forevermore. Remember, Psalm 131 is active. He's declaring, David's declaring that he's calming and quieted his soul, and he's active in the process. It's not this passive mindful, mindlessness or mindfulness, however it's called, it's being mindful of the Lord and his presence. And we should seek out and find ways to do that as well. And Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, did this even though she had 11 kids. We got a lot of kids here, but I don't know if anybody has 11, right? And as you can imagine, she would often need to find ways to calm and quiet her soul. What did she do? She took her apron and she covered her head. And that was her signal for her kids. Leave me alone 
I need to be with the Lord. And kids, if your mom does that today, just, just give her time and space. It is good for her and it is good for you in the long run that she has that time with the Lord. Or even think about the call of worship that we have as we start our service. We quiet our hearts before the Lord to hear from his word. But it ain't all that quiet, is it? Kids are ruffling around. We're trying to maybe silence our cell phones. We still are anxious or worried or stressed out about these different things. But then after a few moments, what happens? We hear from the word of the Lord. And then we're reminded, even in that way, that the Lord is with us. His presence is among his people. So we can have hope in that. And for some of us who aren't in a busy season of life like that, we may not have a loud and busy household. Maybe the kids have grown up and moved away, or maybe your siblings are scattered around the country or around the world. Maybe you're in a season where things are generally quiet for you. Maybe you feel lonely. Be reminded that the Lord himself is with us. He's with you. He doesn't have plans on packing his bags and going anywhere. Allow the Holy Spirit to comfort you, even in your loneliness. Final point of application. Allow the goodness of the Lord to fill in the gaps. Allow his presence to quiet our souls and allow his people to remind us of our hope. Allow his people to remind us of our hope. God's people in Psalm 131 are referred to as Israel. And through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are known as God's people. And the Bible calls us, if you are in Christ, chosen, beloved, holy, set apart, saints, sons and daughters of God the Father, siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. That is who we are. If you are in Christ, that is who you are. And David's calling all of God's people to hope in the Lord, to follow his example and even borrow his hope if they need to. And we are called to do the same. It's like me and my sisters growing up. If it was after school and we were hungry, we had a few dollars in our pocket, we put our money together, go to Burger King or something, and buy what we could all afford collectively. That's what we had to do. If one of us ate, everybody ate. That was just the way that it was. And church, we need to continue to live with that mentality. If I got it, I will share it with you. If I eat, we're all going to eat. If I have hope and you need hope, I will lend my hope to you. And that means that we need to be willing to lend and also borrow. Many of us are givers. We love to serve, we love to encourage, but it's hard for us to be on the receiving end of encouragement and hope. And part of how we can grow is growing in our humility and vulnerability. Allowing your brothers and sisters in Christ to do what the Bible says in Galatians 6.2, carry one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What we try to do with our Fellowship that we have afterwards, it's what we try to do in our small groups. It's what we aim to do in our men's retreats or even in the upcoming women's retreats. To get to know each other, to get refreshed in the Lord, but also to give and receive hope for one another. We sing together on the Lord's Day as we look around the room. As you see your brother or sister singing with joy and hope, or you see them singing through tears. Those are reminders for us that the Lord is still with us. Or even as we take the Lord's Supper, as we will do soon, receiving the Lord's Supper with hope, trusting in his finished work. Look around the room and be reminded that the Lord has been at work in so many different people among us. If you are lacking hope today, brother and sister. You are in the right place. Don't hide that from anybody. And church, may we be, continue to be good stewards of the hope that we have in Christ, being willing to lend and even to borrow it from our brothers and sisters.
Every Moment Holy is a ministry that has liturgies and prayers in all these various different seasons of life. And one of them is called the Liturgy for Embracing Both Sorrow and Joy. And I think this helps to illustrate the humble hope that we should have in the Lord. We'll close by reading a bit of this prayer. Be at work, gilding these long heartbreaks with the advent of new joys, good friendships, true fellowship, unexpected delights. Remind me again and again of your goodness, your presence, and your promises. For this is who we are, a people of the promise, a people shaped in the image of God, of the very God whose being generates all joy in the universe, yet who also weeps and grieves its brokenness. So we, your children, are also at liberty to lament our losses, even as we simultaneously rejoice in the hope of their coming restoration. Let me learn now, O Lord, to do this as naturally as the inhale and exhale of a single breath, to breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy, to breathe out lament, to breathe in hope, to breathe out pain, to breathe in comfort, breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy. In one hand, I grasp the burden of my grief, or with the other, I reach for the hope of grief's redemption. And here, in the tension between the two, between what was and what will be, in the very is of now, let my heart, O Lord, be surprised by, shaped by, warned by, remade by the same joy that forever wells within and radiates from your heart, O God. Amen.